You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Do me a favor now. I want to invite you to join me in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible, find your way to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or some way to get access to one, do me a favor. There's also a paperback Bible under the chair that's in front of you. And so don't be afraid of the table of contents. If this is one of your first times to hold a Bible, uh, make that our gift to you. In fact, make that paper Bible a gift to someone you know who doesn't have a Bible. You can't steal them. We want want to put these, uh, we want to put what we believe is God's Word to us into the hands of as many people as possible. And so over the last couple of years as a church, we've been trekking through the gospel of Matthew. That word gospel you hear us use a lot, it just simply means good news. And the first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and are known as the gospels. That is the good news, the eyewitness testimony of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we find ourselves in the latter third of this book. Now, as I've shared with you each time, as you make your way into the latter third of this, of this book, everything begins to slow down. Matthew starts to draw out in, 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 in very, very explicit detail certain features of the story. He covers over 30 years of the life of Jesus in the first two-thirds of the gospel and then zooms in on, slows down as if a, a slow-motion part, part of the film begins, and he covers in the last third only one week. And we find in the last several chapters, he covers only a couple of days. Now this is, as I've shared with you before, not uncommon. Uh, it's beginning in verse, or chapter 21 of the 28 chapters of Matthew, this is where this last week begins. In, in Mark's gospel, there's only 16 chapters, but the last week of Jesus' life is beginning in verse, excuse me, chapter 11. In Luke's gospel, there's 24 chapters, and the last week of Jesus' life is covered from 19 on. And then in John's gospel, there's 21 chapters, and he begins in chapter 12, covering only one life, uh, or excuse me, oh man, this is, we're gonna, it's, it's going to get better, maybe, I don't know. Only one week of the life of Jesus. That is, by my rough count, uh, roughly one-third, 30 of the 89 gospel chapters cover one single week in the life of Jesus. And that's meant to draw our attention and kind of heighten our sense of focus and awareness on something Matthew wants you and I to know. And so I'm going to read to us, uh, beginning as we're in chapter 26, picking up where we left off, in verse 57. Up to this point, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, has announced his arrival with with hard and powerful preaching of curses towards people who are hypocrites, a a word of warning for those who would would fall away. And then, as it were, the, the, the animosity and adversity rises between the religious leaders that have that have plotted now to, to, they're going to arrest Jesus, as we saw last week, and now they've drug him at night, Matthew tells us, into this kind of the palace of the, of the chief priest to begin to accuse him, begin to try to put him to death, as it were. So we're going to read these two sections all the way to the end of the 26th chapter, beginning in verse 57. Then, those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face. and They struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. There are some stories I love to retell. Love to tell them over and over again. Uh, and I love to draw out certain details in them. I, I love to tell the story of how my wife and I uh, first started dating and got together. I like to draw out certain details that make the story better, uh, even including one of the before, you know, I guess as we were getting to know each other and uh, on New Year's Eve, got closer and closer to midnight, I'm freaking out, getting kind of nervous, and then asked her, can I borrow your lips for New Year's? <laughs> That's right. I like to draw out those details because the joke is on you. Now we have two kids. <laughs> and after 23 years from then, uh, she still likes me. I mean, I mean as much as a husband should be liked, right? Not every day, but like she likes me. <laughs> I like telling stories. Uh, I love retelling the story of the days that my, uh, each, each of my daughters were born and drawing out the details. I can tell you like they were yesterday. I can walk you through the emotions of that day, and little things that stand out. Uh, same thing, they're just, they, I retell them, and I love to retell them. I, I love to retell the stories uh, of us being a part of helping plant this church, some that we'll celebrate gathering uh, in April 10 years ago. 
Uh, I love to tell those stories. They, 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 they're reinvigorating to, to kind of relive them with other people. And so I want to ask you, what are the stories you love to retell? What are the stories in your life that you love to draw attention to? You're eager, if you, if, if you were to be honest, to kind of slip them into conversations, even where others might not think they actually fit. You, but you're, you're, really, you're really clever at finding ways to get those stories retold in a certain conversation, right? What are the stories you love to retell? What are the details that you like to emphasize? What are the things that you draw out in the story and for what purpose? And then there's another side of that question. What are the stories that you hate to retell? In fact, you can't quite retell them at this point because you just relive them. What are the stories that you hope no one hears about you? I ask that because as we contemplate the stories that we retell, the details that we point out, and even the stories that we're the most ashamed of and the details we want to overlook, in this season of Lent, as it were, Christians for the last centuries have commemorated and celebrated, retold the story of the death of Jesus. But they do so in a very important way. I mentioned it this week. I'll draw a little more attention to it. Because you might be in this room and wondering, why is it that Christians annually, at least for the most part, but even regularly, and I would even argue for hopefully healthy, vibrant churches, retell this story weekly of the death of Jesus, of the trials that he faced, of the denial and betrayal that he endured. Why would you retell this story? And if, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, and you're, maybe you're just not sure if you're a Christian, or you're maybe not sure about Christianity, and you, you have lots of questions about it, and I'm so grateful that you're here, because I bet one of the questions you likely will ask is, why, why, are, we saying that, why are we retelling this story? Especially a story that, in, by all accounts, is not very flattering to Jesus or his followers. Why would we retell the stories? And what details are being drawn out? Now, and I want to point to something important that I, I hope we'll re repeat until we get up to Easter, is that Matthew slows down in this last third, like the other Gospels, and retells a story and points out specific details. Now, what I want you to see is that these are not sentimental details. These are substantive details, even the ones we see here. So much so that you saw last week, and I would say again, there are powerful Christian doctrines and convictions woven in and out of all of these particular chapters. So many uh, that there's no way we could cover them all. But I, I draw attention to this. Notice the details that are drawn out here are not the blood and gore of the story. They're the why. Let me give you some context for this. Uh, a, a, a movie uh, that, I, that I, I, I think some people should, should watch, um, given the season, is Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. It's rated R. But here's my, uh, like I'm a film critic, like that you care what I think. I'll, I'm, gonna sh I'm, I'm, I'm up here, I'm going to tell you anyway. One of the things you'll notice in the retelling of the death of Jesus through that movie is the painstaking detail with which the director and the actors and the storytellers focus in on the blood and gore of the crucifixion. What I want you to notice, because I want you to be deeply, biblically rooted Christians, is how little of the blood and gore is mentioned in any of the Gospels. 
Because after all, you wouldn't have to be a Christian to watch the Passion of the Christ and feel bad or be moved. But make no mistake, to be only moved by the blood and gore of the story is strictly sentimental. And notice what Matthew does. And I want to invite you to contemplate. Matthew doesn't spend, and the other gospel writers don't spend much time talking about the what of the crucifixion. And they spend a ton of time talking about the why. The why of the crucifixion. What is it that Jesus is doing? In fact, one of the most bloody and gory details that the gospel writers tells us is about the, the, the fact that at the end of Jesus' life, to, to make sure the Roman soldiers, uh, or to make sure that Jesus was dead, they, they stabbed Jesus in the midsection. And, and one of the goriest details we get, we don't hear about the blood that came from his beating, whipping, punching, slapping, thorns that were on it. We don't hear any of these things, but we hear that water flowed from his side as if to be a picture, right? Think of the, uh, the, the most advanced medical knowledge of the first century is available here. That person's dead. This person, more than just blood, there's something wrong with this person. Their person is dead. Not just dead, dead, dead. And why do Christians retell this story? And why do they emphasize the details they do? Matthew tells us because there is something going on here. There was a reason that Jesus died. There was a reason that the details emphasized are about his betrayal, about his abandonment, about the false, accusa false accusations levied against him. And so if you're not a Christian and you wonder why would anyone constantly rehearse or relive such a thing, I want you to hear it's not the gory details of the thing, it's the why of the thing. And that why is the thing that we revel in. So you have two sections we just read. Now they were bookended by Peter. If you notice in verse 58, Peter is even mentioned in a scene that he's not in. He, in fact, verse 58 tells us Peter's actually following him from a distance. And so I, I want to draw attention to the, maybe some things we learn about who Jesus is and, and about the story in this first section, about Jesus standing before this kind of tribunal and this, this trial against him. And in the second section, you see a picture of Peter, just as Jesus had predicted in the previous verses, denies him three different times before the sun rises. So, the beautiful encouragement, I think, that comes from this when we think about these accusations levied against him that are false, or even the abandonment, denial, and betrayal of his followers, is that as Jesus is denied, abandoned, and betrayed, you and I are invited to kind of look and go like, oh, okay, I can relate to that guy. I don't find myself, as I'm reading in the Gospels, Jesus walking on water and me going like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know what that's like, right? Or Jesus healing Jesus performing great miracles in public. I don't ever find myself reading those stories and go like, yeah, I remember when that happened. Right? I, I, I don't have any experience of that. But when I see Jesus crying out to God, God, change the story. God, let anything else happen than what is happening now, but your will be. I, see, I can relate to that. When I see Jesus being disappointed by the people who are supposed to be close to him, right? every one of us goes, I, I, I know what that's like. Because there's something greater as we notice Jesus being accused. Now, I want to be very clear. Anytime, as we saw in previous chapters, that Jesus is being cryptic, it's not an accident. 
If Jesus is being cryptic in the way he relates to people and answers questions, don't read too far into, you know, parsing uh, apart the details. If he's being kind of cryptic, it's for a purpose. He's speaking about a mystery that he's inviting you to behold and kind of marvel at. It's not an equation you're meant to solve. So something greater happening here uh, than than what the people see. And, and, And so let's begin to just notice a few things. Notice first that they, as it were, as they seize Jesus, they come back to the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. And then as Peter is following from a distance, right? That's, the, that's your first, like, that's the first, like, practical warning. Hey, don't follow Jesus from a distance. You're going to follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Abide in him, right? You get the idea here. And, and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So also, as, as we saw uh, last week, notice the nature of sin here. This is what sin does. People who were charged with the responsibility of upholding the truth of God's law, of upholding the revelation of God's truth to people, helping apply that to their lives, were, because of what they believed they were doing and believing how righteous they were, were actually turning against God in the flesh himself. We saw in the previous chapters, they'd already made up their mind that they wanted to accuse him and execute him. And we saw in the previous chapters, Jesus was not surprised by this. He saw this coming. But now it's happening. Now the bell is being rung in this sense that can't be unrung. And so the, the people called to uphold truth start stirring up false testimony. But, but notice the irony and the paradox in everything that said, that's said in, in these exchanges. One, it says they had a, a testimony from someone who, who came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And while that was, as we see here, is categorized as false testimony, it might be better thought of as something that's taken out of context, it's somewhat true, sort of. Remember, if you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, as he is interacting in the temple, says that there is one greater than the temple who is here. Jesus begins to show them that everything that the temple was built to represent, right? The temple of God, the place where God resided with his people. That language of the Old Testament, that God tabernacled, that God was temporarily taking up residence with his people. That, all of that was pointing to what Jesus ultimately is. Jesus is the greater one. Jesus is the greater temple where we meet God himself in all of his splendor. Jesus is that tabernacle of God with his people. So much so that Jesus, the Gospel of John records this even in greater detail, detail, that if the temple were to be torn down, now this is important, especially for the first, think about the first generation of readers that read Matthew's Gospel here. They watched in 70 AD when that temple was destroyed. And you have to imagine many of them saw that symbol of God's presence on the earth and were utterly devastated. That was probably one of the most difficult times they had ever survived. And so Matthew's gospel, quite literally, for this kind of first generation of Christians, was a practical encouragement for those people. And they would recall, oh, this is not a shock. Just because the temple is gone, just because right, our, right, this national symbol and this, this powerful picture of God's favor on our people is gone, doesn't mean anything. Jesus is our powerful symbol of God's favor for his people. You get the, the picture? So he's not wrong. Jesus is the the greater temple, the tabernacle of God. And yet they used that, twisted that, in such a way that, that as as far as they're concerned, is an accusation. Now now notice he's appealing to something powerfully miraculous. 
Again, the other gospel writers might add a few words here and there, but make no mistake about it, there's nothing not miraculous about building a massive temple in three days. You can't even lay the foundation. You can't find the bricks, right, to, for the temple in three days, much less build it bottom to top. But here's the other kind of paradoxical exchange. The high priest stands up and says, don't you have an answer? And he's silent. And so he speaks just imagine this. He's speaking to God and commanding God. And again, another picture of sin, or of what sin does. Sin, sin, sin makes us look at God and somehow reverse the roles, as though we can look to God and adjure him. And that's exactly what the high priest does. I adjure you. Another word in the Gospel of Matthew we need to bring back. We need to use that more. I adjure you, especially parents. I adjure you, son. Right? That, that would have, that's not going to help. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Now that phrase is heavy and powerful. The first time we saw this phrase was all the way back in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus questions his, his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Son of God. And Jesus commends him as if to say, the Holy Spirit is the one who showed you this. Flesh and blood has not revealed this. This is a miracle of the Spirit for you to see it. And so that phrase shows up again, but this time Caiaphas, who evidently might have been listening to the rumors starting to swirl around about him, says it. This is where Jesus gets cryptic, but it's also just kind of hard to translate across cultures and centuries. Jesus says, you've said it so. Right? As if to say, like, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he's like, you said it. It's cryptic because, not because he's trying to avoid it, but he's trying to point out the fact that even in their saying, there's something paradoxical going on. They're trying to accuse him with that which is true. Because after all, think of it this way, blasphemy is, is something that defames or insults the very character of the divine. That's what blasphemy is. We don't think about that regularly. In most, most senses, we don't even have a category for blasphemy. And so even to say something that's heretical isn't necessary, necessarily blasphemous. If you mistakenly or even intentionally say something that's inaccurate about God, it might be inaccurate, but, but not necessarily blasphemous. It might not defame or insult, the, insult God, although all blasphemy is in fact heresy. Now, here's the catch. God is most glorified when you and I say that which is most true about him. And in this ironic paradox, you find Caiaphas, the high priest, glorifying and honoring Jesus by saying that which is most powerfully true. That which, at least as we saw in chapter 16, can only be seen through the eyes of the Spirit. And yet he thinks that which is glorifyingly true about him is blasphemy. So Jesus says, yes, but, right? Yes, but. I had uh, one person kind of qualified this way. It's like, yes, but, right? Like uh, a person with a PhD uh, who, who people would refer to as a doctor, and yet if someone was sick, and they'd be like, hey, can you help us? Are you, you're a doctor, right? And they'd be like, yes, but, right? Like, not that kind of, not that, not like that. So Jesus qualifies it. You said it so, you said it, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this this sends, the, this sends the high priest over the edge. Begins to, begins to tear his robes as a, as a sign that, because after all, like if some, that's what blasphemy does. If something's incredibly defamatory, it, it's, it's like it impugns and invites guilt on everyone in the room, right? It, it's as if someone, if someone like, if I were to stand up here and say something so grotesque, so awful, 
that if you sat silently by, you'd be complicit in it. That's what blasphemy does. It's this idea that like, I can't sit and tolerate such a thing. I, I can't sit and listen to such a thing. And, and in a, as a sign of outrage, he rips his own robe as if to say, this is, this is unbelievable. And so while that which is true glorifies God, notice Jesus says, yes, but there's something else going on here. It isn't just that I am who you have worded, how you, I am the person you have you, the way you've worded it, but there's even more. Yes, I'm the Christ. Yes, the one, as it were. Jesus is it. Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that for these children of Israel, they had hoped would come and restore all things, that would overthrow their enemies and, and remove the Roman occupation that, that dictated all of the decisions in their life, that, that they would freely and, and completely one day become under the king that is God. And there would be one that would come and make all things new. And Jesus is saying, I am that one. I am the Christ. That's the language of the anointed one, the Messiah. I'm the one who will save. I'm the son of God, but then he adds something else. I'm also the son of man. This is right out of Daniel chapter 7, a picture of the very might and sovereignty of God, the holy of holies, the, the ancient of days, giving all authority and power to the one that would come on the clouds. Listen to what he's saying and rebuking them. Yes, I am the one you think or you're afraid that I might be, but make no mistake about it, while right now you have authority over me, while right now you might have the ability to take my life from me, while right now it may look like by all appearances you have power over me, friend, make no mistake about it, the next time you see me, I will have all the power. And when I come, I won't be like the one, I love this, right? I won't be like the one in the, previous, in the previous passages. I won't be like the one who comes with clubs and swords. I will be the one who comes on the clouds. And now they have all they need. After all, to call himself Savior, Soter, Christ, is enough for them to tell the Roman, right, the, the Roman authorities that he's, uh, that he, that he's seditious, that he's trying to overthrow the rightful place of Caesar as Savior but also they have everything they need. Now he's basically put himself in the place of God. See all of the powerful things at work where three different times Jesus, when given the opportunity to back down, simply says, these are real. This is the testimony. Before Peter denies Christ, ironically, the chief priests identify him. Now move to verse 69. Peter comes back into view. Remember, he was in the very beginning. He was on the outside, but now, now Matthew tells us the rest of the story. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and then two different times, a servant girl comes to him. Once in verse 69, a servant girl came up to him, and then 71, another servant girl. Now, there's a lot going on here, but at least a couple of things are important here. One, a servant girl. Think of this as, I don't, at least in this culture, think of this as the least threatening person that could come up to him, right? A person with no authority, no power. Now, there is no accusatory, to, uh, accusatory tone in this particular passage. We don't, we don't have it. It's, it, Matthew doesn't tell us in any way, shape, or form that either of these servant girls came up and said, like, are you one of him? Right? Like, they don't come up as if to, like, throw him in. So, notice, the first thing you see is the utter embarrassment of what Peter is doing. 
the least threatening person, a person in this culture who had no power or authority, was enough to scare Peter. He couldn't even admit it to the servant girl. And you think, well, that's pretty awful. And then another servant girl comes along and says, you were the one with him. But here's the second thing I want you to also see, and this is the kind of laced through this. In the same way that these two servant girls serve as a picture of just how, of just how terrified and just how cowardly Peter was in this circumstance, it also gives us a picture of who Jesus is, right? Uh, This is a person with no power or clout. Any other girl would have been at home in bed. A servant girl was there at the will of their master, doing something there in this palace of the high priest. And yet, you get a, a little glimpse into the work of Jesus, don't you? This servant girl and this other servant girl, they've heard of Jesus. They, they know Jesus. Even so much that like, they know Jesus and, I, and they seem to even know the people who have been with them. This beautiful picture of the gospel that those without power, those, right, those without a voice themselves, are the ones that are like the very beginning of this gospel movement. And then the third time, other bystanders came up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them, you, your accent, right? You, I mean, this is where I would make some, I would pantomime some sort of accent, but I, I, can't, I can't do it very well, so I'm not going to. But imagine the most distinct accent you can think of, right? Imagine, imagine the most distinct possible accident, or accent, Accent you can imagine, right? Oh, don't you know? Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> hey, y'all. Right? Like, imagine that person with such a thick, a thick, right? A thick accent. And like, aren't you, you sound like you're from the South, right? Or you sound like you're from the upper Midwest. And then them going like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> right? I, I, wait, how, why are you, you get the idea? As if to say like, these people are like, it, it, it's not just that we saw you with Jesus. It seems like we did, but, but you, you sound like him. A couple things you notice in the middle of those. As you walk through the first section, notice Jesus responds and has three different opportunities to deny, and all three times doesn't. At any given moment, you can say, you're right, I said too much. I went a little far. I'm not really the son of God. I'm not really the son of man, right? I pushed the edge. I apologize. Let me have my life. And then we see here three different times that Peter denies. So much so that at the very beginning it says he began to invoke a curse. Now here, I I don't regularly regularly correct, as it were, scholars. uh, But if you read verse 74, there's something really interesting. It says he began to invoke a curse. Now that phrase on himself, that doesn't exist. Uh, in the original text, that curse on himself, it just says he invoked a curse and swore. Now, in, in most senses, uh, when a person inver- invokes a curse, it's regularly that the, it's, not, it's not common that they would invoke a curse on themselves. They, they typically invoke the curse on a direct object. And so, grammarians and commentarians are, do not agree uh, on who it is that he's cursing. It is possible that he is, in fact, cursing Jesus. It is quite possible that he is saying, not just, no, I don't know the man, but blankety-blank, no, or forget that man, I don't know him at all. Either way, notice the escalating nature three different times. Now, this isn't the first time that this has happened, right? We're, we're just one section of text away from a very similar triplet. 
Anytime you see three of anything in the Bible, you're meant to go, oh, this is, this is something I'm supposed to remember. The, the quintessential is in Isaiah chapter, chapter 6, where Isaiah, being called to be a prophet, goes into the, and gets this vision of the temple of God and, and, and gets this picture of God beginning to inhabit the temple with just the train of his robe. That is that the glory of the Lord fills the temple of God, but God isn't even there. It's just his clothing just the the hem of the garment of god fills the temple with glory and then the the powerful majestic declaration of all these messengers of god say holy 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 is the lord god almighty and then when isaiah encounters this god even just the rain just the right just the train of his temple filling or train of his robe filling the temple he says woe to me a man i'm a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips that, that triplet of holy, holy, holy. Holy meaning separate, as if to say this is the very nature of God. Holy means to be set apart from. And, and here, it's just hard to articulate. I'll see if you can, I can do this without getting just tongue-tied, but think of holy is set apart from or different from, completely different from, right? So that is God is set apart from not just the world, God is set apart from that which is set apart from that which is set apart from everything else. God isn't just different and set apart from everything that you know. God is above and beyond everything that you know and, and everything you know. You get the idea? It's like holy cubed, as it were. Exponentially so. This is the nature of God. And so we've seen it even in the passage before it. Whenever something shows up three times, it's meant to grab your attention. In the previous passage, what happened three times? Jesus says to his disciples, come with me. Watch and pray fall asleep, right? Okay, watch and pray, fall asleep. Okay, that's two. What? No, okay, guys, no, really, watch and pray. And what are they, like, and you're meant to go, wow, their, wow, their failure to abide with Jesus is utter, right? Cubed. And the same thing here is true. Jesus, or the denial of Jesus by Peter is not just awful, it's utter, it's complete. It's to the third power. Blankety blank, I don't know this man. Even though he had promised just before this, before all, he had made a commitment to, to Jesus and all the disciples, even if all of them will fall away, I will not deny you. Jesus, Peter says this back in verse 33. Jesus in 34 says, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And then Peter said to him as if to like dig in his heels, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then the least threatening person, the, least, the person least able to kill him, a servant girl, and eventually her servant girl friend, have him scared and running. This is a picture. This is a picture of the faithlessness of the followers of Jesus. Now, before we move on, notice, even though his denial is the most, right, the most emphatic, times three, as it were, it's also the most powerful picture of grace. There is no greater picture of our hope in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. It was not that Peter did anything. If you were to ask, what is it that Peter brought to the table, you would almost say he brought utterly the opposite of that which would have been good. And what a beautiful picture of grace. Here's how I know you can trust grace. There is no other story that you can retell that reveals the most painful failure of the leaders. This is how I know you can trust the Bible. 
If you come cynical or skeptical, there is no other eyewitness account of anything like this that is, so, that is more painfully honest about its leaders. And here's, I know you can trust grace. There is no other book that reveals the painful failures of its leaders, even in light of sin. Look at the picture of sin here in that second section. We look at sin and we find ourselves, no matter where we are, saying, there's no way I would ever do that. Just like Peter back in verse 32. There's no way I could ever do that. And that's, that's, that's what sin looks like from us. You could never see yourself doing some of the things that you've done. And we even make commitments related to it. We make commitments based on our best selves or the, the way that we under, understand ourselves. And you would never see yourself breaking those kinds of promises. Because after all, one of the most, uh, I think one of the most powerful, uh, right, one of the most powerful lessons here is that like self-confidence without self-knowledge is arrogance. Peter didn't know himself, and that's what sin does. Another thing you see in the nature of sin as Peter denies Jesus is that whether you realize it or not, right now where you sit, you will do things that you never have thought you were capable of doing. We will break the commitments that we would never imagine ourselves breaking, not even right now as we sit here knowing that we're capable of doing it. It is so easy to imagine all the other people that we know will, let, like, will be a disappointment. <laughs> That's easy to picture. Yet we do it. Not just that we do it. We see in the picture of like, the three times that Peter does it. We don't just do it. We can't stop doing it. And we do it while denying and even cursing the very nature of God. So, I want you to see some practical encouragements I think that we take from this. One, God is bringing about his redemptive purposes in the world. You can't always see it. Look at the paradox of that first section. Jesus, in front of these people, seems to be utterly powerless. His fate is subject to the whims of liars, of people who are bearing false testimony and His fate seems to be subject to the whims of the people summoning out false testimony. His fate is held in the hands of people who are twisting his words and have already set an agenda against him, and now they're just looking for a way to excuse it. And it looks like, as far as you can tell, Jesus is powerless, helpless, and out of control. But friend, God is bringing about his redemptive purposes in the world. You just can't always see it. But sit in this for just a minute. Let me just give an encouragement for some of you that this might apply. I can't imagine, (laughs) I can't imagine for many of you over what you've endured in the last days, weeks, months, or years, I can't imagine how hopeless at times you have probably felt. Learn the lesson that Matthew is teaching us here. It looks like, it seems like, by all appearances, it may feel like things are hopeless and helpless. I don't know what God is doing, but you can't always tell. A distinct hope that that we find in Jesus is that even when it looks as though things are out of control and hopeless and helpless, they're not. (laughs) Everything is happening under the guidance, comfort, and care of the Father. No, I can't see it. No, I don't understand it. Don't ask me. Ask him. He's God, right? That's why you ask. 
And yet there's a distinct comfort that I hope maybe some of you will find. If you find yourself, like, as you read this, like, this, seems te- this doesn't seem right. This seems out of place. Friend, you're in good company. God's doing something. God's working. Even like Joseph would say, what, what, what evil forces meant for, for harm, God has meant for good. You just can't always see it. Look also at the paradox between the two sections. Jesus is the faithful on behalf of the faithless. These two stories are sandwiched together as if to say, at the very beginning, verse 57, they seized uh, seized Jesus, arrested him, went up to Caiaphas, and then verse 58, uh, Matthew's like, Peter was there, but not really. And then he just leaves it, it, it right? This is the, the structure of the, of the little lesson, starting with the first verse and the word then. There's Peter, and then, and then we kind of like scene changes to, to the interaction between, the, between Caiaphas and Jesus, and then it comes back to Jesus. And you're meant to, by design here, according to Matthew, hold the two things side by side. Look at how faithful, patient, and good Jesus is. Look how faithless and helpless his followers are. Look at those two things side by side and marvel. They're not an accident. At least from the perspective of the Father, they're not shocking. They're all according to design. After all, that's exactly what Peter did. Peter saw the two things side by side. Did you hear the last verse that we read? He went out and wept bitterly. For some of you, the encouragement might be for you today, and this might seem like a strange invitation, but the invitation for some of you today is to weep bitterly over that paradox. When you see yourself, the commitments and promises you failed to keep, and you see Jesus and the commitments and promises he has succeeded to keep, that will probably first cause you to weep. Don't be afraid. I've said this before, but one of the ways to think about it is every deep and committed faith in Jesus usually travels through a good type of atheism. That is, the things that you now believe are God, the things that you now worship and hope in, find comfort in, the things you really believe are going to bring about all of the ends that you long and desire for, at certain point you will have, they will have to die and fail. Did you see Peter's? Right? It was himself, as it were, right? Like, that was, that was his God. I got this. What do you mean, Jesus? I'm, I'm not going to fail you. Have you met me? <laughs> and then notice kind of the good atheism that happens in his weeping bitterly. He sees the promises he made, and he sees his inability to keep them, and weeps. For some of you, that might be the invitation. The step towards trusting in Jesus as a good and better deliverer is to mourn the loss of the false and fake deliverers you've leaned on your entire life. Mind you, it will be bitter. And yet, right there, side by side, in the story, in existence, right next to your faithlessness is the faithfulness of Jesus. I think you also see something about, I mean, this might be encouraging for as, as we think about like what it means to, uh, to live in light of what we learn from Peter's wrong example. Here's my encouragement, my challenge. Make commitments knowing they form you and reveal you and your community. Notice what happens here. 
Peter makes a promise through the course of this chapter. Peter makes a public commitment. I'm going to do this, and he fails. Now, there's a lot going on there, but here's kind of the axiom of wisdom I would give to you, uh, especially when I, when I talk to uh, couples who are considering getting married. Um, I say considering, they're usually already committed to it, but what do they know, right? Here's the phrase I usually say, uh, and, 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 it's, and it's true, I think, across the board because it reflects the character of God. You do not grow into commitment. You grow from commitment. Let me say that again. You do not grow into commitment. That is that you don't grow and get ready for and all of a sudden achieve the status to where a commitment is kept. Instead, we make the commitment and then we grow through it. Now this reveals the character of God. God is revealed in his commitments. We know God as the one who keeps his promises, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we know that not just in a moment, we know that over the course of eternity. God's character is revealed in his commitment to these things, his inability to turn from his faithfulness forever in the past and forever in the future. And this is beautiful for us because all of his commitment in that sense preceded all of ours. God didn't come to you and say, once you clean up yourself, I will promise myself to you, right? Once you have earned my love and faithfulness, then I will, right, I will commit it to you. That's not the gospel. The good news is that when we were dead in our trespasses, that was when Christ died for us. That was when God said, I'm going to give you all of me for all of time, once and for all. But I'm a mess. I know. Hear it all. And you get the picture? And so as that forms and shapes us, you begin to realize that you're never ready for any of the promises you've made. I mean, in arrogance, lacking in self, any sort of like self-knowledge, right? Like, of course I'm going to. No, you're not. No one's, and, and no one's ever ready to get married. Never met anyone who was like, I'm like afterward, me like, we were totally ready for that. Aced it. I've never met a parent who was like, I'm totally, I'm totally ready to be parents, right? I was just, I aced it, right? I've never heard that. And this goes across the board. I've never heard a, a godly, unmarried single person say, I was totally ready for that. I was totally, I'm completely ready for that, right? I just, I'm, these, are, these are good and godly callings that we have in our lives, and we're not ready for any of them. And yet what? Once we commit ourselves to these things, once we give ourselves over to these things, what's actually true about us invites more and more grace. That's the beauty. The beauty isn't that you're an awesome husband ready to commit or an awesome wife, right? The beauty is that you're not and all the grace and love is still available to you. You get the picture? So friend, learn from this lesson because one of the things you might hear, unfortunately, in the failed commitments of Peter, is reinforcement of why you don't make commitments. See, this is why I don't commit to anything. This is why I don't publicly align with anything. This is why I don't put myself out there in that way. I'm just going to hold back. Because people disappoint. I don't want to I don't experience it. I don't want anyone to just be disappointed in me. And, and here's why no one, that means no one actually knows you. Least of all you. And so look at Peter making promises and yet growing through them after he breaks them. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus towards him, even though, right, like, it's kind of like, is he a follower of Jesus? Well, there's only one way to find out. Not only do commitments form and reveal you, they form and reveal community. There is no community without commitment. It doesn't exist. 
And so if someone's like, well, I'm not, I mean, I'm non-committal. I mean, yeah, you know, I don't make commitments. That's just like saying, I just want you to know when, when, you, when, when, when your non-committal nature is visible to others, it's just like saying, watch your back. I just want you to know around me, watch your back. I may or may not turn on you. Now, because we know the faithfulness of Jesus, we're invited to admit that and just be like, yeah, I'm going to try to anyway, though. Even through my fail, right? Even through my, my failure to, and inability to live up to these promises that I've made, even then I'll experience more and more grace. But the lack of commitment destroys communities. So my encouragement to you, what, think upon some of the places where you're withholding commitment and jump out in faith. Will you disappoint and fail? Yes! Will others disappoint and fail? Yes! Will Jesus? You get it? The really irrefutably true things about you are revealed in your commitments. Or maybe for some of you in your complete lack thereof. And you'll never know it until you're, by faith, able to bring it to the surface. And Jesus looks right at the irrefutably true things about you that are revealed in your failed commitments and he silently steps into your fate. So make commitments. They form you. They reveal you. And they invite more and more grace. So why, why would I do that, you might say. That's terrifying. Why would I, why would I, that sounds awful. Why would, you, why would I set myself up for that? Well, it's written in there, not only is Jesus the Christ, not only is Jesus the Son of God, not only is Jesus the Son of Man, and he's also the Lamb of God who's come for those who would betray, abandon, and deny him. Where do I get that? Well, go back into the, the heart of this particular passage. It was right there in the middle. I don't know if you heard it. Verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. Matthew's been a masterful, a masterful author, and he's done this at m- multiple moments. But let me read to you Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 a picture of what God's redemptive work in the world would look like. Mind you, you won't be able to see it. It looks different. This vision is that he would be oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Why, you might ask? (laughs) Why didn't he open his mouth? Why didn't he cry out against the injustice of this affliction and oppression? Because he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. And so he opened not his mouth. Why did Jesus not respond, maybe like you or I would have? Why did Jesus do such a thing? Because he isn't just the Savior. He isn't just the Son of God. He isn't just the Son of Man. He is the Lamb of God. And there was no more powerful picture than when you see Jesus being silent, right? Silent as he is falsely accused. And Peter being bold and boisterous in his denial. What a powerful juxtaposition. You find Jesus as the Lamb of God because he is not just, in this sense, an example. And he's not just the Lord who will come on the clouds, although he is that. The way that he will, we will experience him that way is that he will first be the substitute. Jesus professes three times what is true. Peter denies three times what is true. And look what happens as a result. Jesus is faithful and truthful, and he gets death. Peter is cowardly and denying, and what does he get? (laughs) He gets to run free. Do, do, Do you hear it? 
Do you hear the echoes of the gospel? Jesus is faithful and true, and he dies. You and I are faithless and cowardly, and we live. Get the picture. Let me say it again. Jesus is faithful. He is true. He professes that which is righteously and infinitely powerfully and gloriously true, and it sends him to a cross. You and I deny. We are cowardly, sinful. We run. We hide. And what's true? We get off scot-free. Look at the substitute. Matthew shows these two stories side by side, one who is faithful and one who has kept all of his commitments and promises, and yet one who has shirked his commitments and promises, and what? He's the one who gets off. And the ultimately faithful one takes death, silent. Why? Because he saw what he was doing. He was coming as the Lamb of God for those who would betray, abandon, and deny him. See the substitute. See the faithful one dying and the faithless one living. Because when you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see it, it changes you. It changes the way you make commitments. It changes the way you view yourself and the world. It changes the way you see grace. Jesus is the one. He's the Savior. And all of the hypocrisy and all the broken promises of the world are borne by the Lamb as the substitute. See the two side by side. Be encouraged as you contemplate the mystery Remember what I told you, your commitments reveal your, right, they reveal you, they reveal who you are and your community. Stop for just a moment and ponder the commitments and promises of Jesus here. To be for you. Ponder the commitments and promises of Jesus in his silence. He has a way out, right? <laughs> Same way out that Peter had. He has a way out. And it's as if he looks at you, looks at me, he looks at Peter and all those who have abandoned him and failed him and said, I'm not going to say a word. Friend, this is why we retell the story. These are the stories we retell, not for sentiment, but for substance. We retell the story of our faithlessness constantly over and over and over again being met by the faithfulness of Jesus. We retell and we rehearse the sacrificial lamb silently bearing the weight of our sin. We retell these stories. In a moment, we're going to retell it again, and we're actually going to be a part of the reenactment. As Christians have done for the centuries before today, we're going to be invited to meet Jesus. Jesus himself at a table will celebrate the Lord's Supper, a communion. That is, that we come before the very presence of God. How do we get there, you might ask? Well, someone will declare to you a mystery that I want you to reflect upon and consider. And I want you to receive as an invitation. It's for, for all of you who are repenting, baptized believers in Jesus. Right? Think of it as this way. If you can't celebrate the mercy of God for Peter and the mercy of God for you and your failure, you, you have no part in this table. It would just be really silly. At worst, you'd be drinking condemnation on yourself. But, however, for those of us who see side by side the faithlessness of the followers and the faithfulness of the Savior, we're invited to experience something powerful. For some of you, it might be to weep. Today's weep. Sit in it. Weep at your failure. Right? Weep at your faithlessness before Jesus. He was right about you, and you were wrong. And here's what, and that might sound awful, but here's, because you think, well, how will I ever get out of it? You will. That's the thing. Once you start to lament and weep over your sinfulness, God always meets you there. Every single time. He won't leave you there. He won't, he won't let you die there. And the minute you do, you begin to see side by side his faithfulness, the Lamb of God coming to take your place. Let's pray together now as we begin to prepare to meet him 
at the table. Jesus, thank you that you have come to do what we could not. You have come to show us what we are really like so that we would begin to experience and receive all the love that you give in spite of it. Thank you that you are the faithful and worthy one. You have come to draw us near and you have paid a price higher than we can imagine. And so as the Apostle Paul encourages us to consider, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So then let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. And so right where you are, would you join me in silent prayer? Right where you are, would you, with, with a, a, a weeping, maybe a, a hopefulness, or maybe just a, a discouragement, would you, right where you are, would you confess the ways you have denied Jesus? Would you join me? Confess in your own words, silently, simply. Confess how you have not met the standard of the righteousness of God. And now as you confess these things to the Father, he is not shocked, he is not surprised. We hear the encouragement of the Apostle John who says to each and every one of us in our sin, behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Would you rest in, and in just a moment as we respond to the invitation, would you feast in what the Lamb of God has done for you Would you find comfort and hope in what the Lamb of God has done for you to take away all the sin, to replace all of our faithlessness with His faithfulness? Jesus, might we contemplate the mystery of these two stories of the faithful one going to death and the faithless one getting off free. Thank you that we get to feast in and celebrate that together today. Help us to, by the mystery and powerful of the work of the Spirit, receive this as a gift of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.